One thing about Christmas that we've never pondered before is the mystery of Christmas, the true mystery of Christmas. And it's a mystery that I think sometimes is staring us in the face, but it eludes us because it's actually from one of the most famous Christmas verses around, right? Matthew 1, 23. And it's this, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now, this is a mystery. I know it's on the bottom of like every Christmas card you get. I get it. But there is a mystery contained in this verse that I think sometimes we totally miss. And it's not the mystery of how a teenage virgin could become pregnant. The mystery is who Jesus is called here. He's called Emmanuel. And translated, that means God with us. Now, some people are like, why is the child named Emmanuel? I thought his name was Jesus. It just said his name was Jesus. Well, here's the deal. In the Bible, it was very common for people to have multiple names because each of their names represented something about that person, a different characteristic or an attribute. And that's why when you read through the Old Testament, God has all sorts of nicknames and other names. I mean, he's got names like Yahweh, which mean I am, I've always been, always will be, right? He's got names like Adonai, which means sovereign Lord, I'm in control of everything, I own the pink slip on everything you see. He's got the name Elohim, which just means God. El Shaddai, which is God the Most High, there's no one higher, he holds the, holdest, the highest office in the land. He's got all these nicknames, and, and this is a common way to refer to someone, give them different nicknames depending upon their attributes and characteristics. I mean, we do the same thing today. Like, take, for example, the greatest magic basketball player of all time, Shaquille O'Neal, okay? Now, Shaquille O'Neal, that's his full name, but we also know him as Shaq, right? And then he made a karate movie, and it became a video game, which was terribly lame, we called him Shaq Fu, Right? It was his own form of karate. Then he was unstoppable, so we named him the Diesel. Then he became Superman. Then he went to the Celtics, and he became the Big Shamrock. And then he, like, he started spitting out poetry, and we called him the Big Aristotle. I mean, he's all these things. He's amazing. He can write poetry. He can dunk. He can shatter backboards. He's everything. He's Diesel. He's Shaq. It's very common to give someone nicknames based upon their attributes. And so when we read in Hebrew... And literally translated over into Greek, when we read that Jesus' name is Emmanuel, that's telling us something very important about Jesus. And what's cool is when you break the name Emmanuel apart, this like mystery begins to be unlocked. Check this out. Emmanuel is made up of three Hebrew words. Ima, which means with. Nu, which means us. And El, which is the name for God, El. This is the with us God. Emmanuel means God with us. Now that is, it's a head scratcher. It's totally counterintuitive because when we read through the Bible, this is something that doesn't make sense at first. Especially with our conscience and the way we live our lives. God with us doesn't sound like something that makes a whole lot of sense. You know, for example, the Bible says in Romans 3 that Every human being is a sinner. You know, there's none righteous, not even one person. There's no one who does good. No one seeks after God. There's not one person that's righteous, not even one. And some people are like, but my Nana is righteous. No, not even your Nana, okay? And you're like, what is she guilty of, watching too much Matlock? I mean, it's, it's, it's seriously, everyone's a sinner, the Bible says. Everyone sins. And so, uh, I'll tell you how to tick Nana off later, but... Um, God says even Nana sins, right? 
And listen, Paul wasn't one of those self-righteous Christians that gets on Facebook and does drive-by blogging, flame blogs, you know, and blows people up and is like, you guys are sinners and I'm good. And that no, was not Paul's shtick. Later on in the book of Romans, chapter 7, check this out. Look what Paul says about himself. For I do not do the good I want, but I, the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Have you ever seen that verse at the Christian bookstore before? <laughs> That's kind of a different one, isn't it? Paul says this. He says, you know the evil, terrible, horrible things that I can't stop doing? Yeah. That's the things I keep on doing. And I hate it. And the things that I want to do, the good things, I can't find myself doing. It's like, Paul, this guy's sold out. Loves the Lord. Is planting churches. He's always in Sunday school. Never misses. Never have to call and check up on the guy. Never wonder where he is. His seat's always occupied. This guy says, listen, when I examine my heart and my motives and I look at what I've done, the things that I hate, I keep on doing. And the things I so want to do, I haven't been able to grasp yet. That was Paul's confession in the book of Romans. And this is the part of the Bible that a lot of times I think gets lost even at Christmas. Because, you know, we go to Walmart, we go to the Hallmark bookstore, whatever, you know, the family Christian bookstore. They have everything there that's positive, it's upbeat, it's what would Jesus do? And, you know, we've got the Jesus fish on the back of our car. And we've got the mug that say, do unto others as you'd have done to you. And it's just all, it's the golden rule. And nobody has a t-shirt that says, I keep on doing horrible things and I can't stop. Never seen that before. Never seen that. But that's the gist of Romans chapter 7. That's the gist of humanity, Paul says. That's the best we can do as Christians even. I mean, here's an accurate paraphrase, okay? Romans 7 is this. I don't want to be a freak, but I can't help myself, okay? I know, that's not going to preach too well, but that's what he's saying here. And Paul is saying, I keep finding myself doing the things that I hate. And here's the deal. Although we secretly sort of like, we, 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 we rebel against this message. I mean, it's, it's deflating to our ego, to our pride, to our dignity. And so we kick against it. But we, also, we also secretly sort of like, we are comforted by Romans 7. Because when we read Romans 7, we think to ourselves, I, I thought I was the only one. I thought I was the only one like this. I mean, we read Romans 7. We've been Christians 25 years. We're like, geez, Paul struggled with this too. I don't know about you, but I've been saved 15 years. I feel like I'm on the Truman Show. You see a new convert coming to the church? It's Truman, you know? He's the only one that's not acting. He's the real one. The rest of us are imposters, and we're watching the real legit guy. That's how I feel in my Christian life. And I read Paul, and Paul says, listen, the things I don't want to do, I keep on doing. That's the best humanity has, even with the power of God's Spirit. And I think that Romans 7 is the perfect antidote for this culture that's walking away from Christianity because the reason Christianity is failing in America is because we have told people that Christianity is all about moralism. You know, David Zoll says this. Uh, here's a quote. I missed this quote, but listen to this. This is one of the great old dead guys, Horatius Bonar. And you've got to listen to a guy that looks like this, okay? You have to. It says, if Romans 7 were not in the Bible, we would have no idea what a realistic Christian life looked like. Fred's writing that one down. That's a nugget right there. But go to the next quote too here. Check this out. David Zoll, modern day theologian. He says, American Christianity now is in crisis. In large part because people have marketed it as a religion of good people getting better. When, mm -hmm, when in fact, it is a religion of bad people coping with their failure to be good. That's what it's all about. I mean, Christmas is not Jesus coming back and saying, do better, try harder, eat your vegetables and clean your room up. That's not what it's about. And so I think, you know, the reason that Christianity has gotten a bad rap in, in America is because, listen, we have told people basically this, 
grace equals I'm more moral than you. And guess what? They're friends with us. They've seen our homes. They see the way we talk to our families. And so we tell people, you know what grace is? Once you get grace, then you be can become holy and well-adjusted just like me. And then they become friends with us, and they come to our house, and they see the way that we live, and they think to ourselves, that whole Christianity thing is a joke. Because they see us that we are just as prone to being angry, just as prone to bitterness. In some cases, we are more prone to things like gossip and unforgiveness. I mean, goodness gracious, what is it about unforgiveness in church people? You go and start going to church, and all of a sudden you can't forgive anyone. Every opinion has to be on Facebook, and if you don't like it, well, just that's tough noogies for you. But they see that, and they think, this is, all, this is all a joke, because we have marketed it as grace equals I'm more moral than you. That's not grace. John Newton has said this, grace is not the secret to winning the game. Grace is permission to admitting we've lost it. When the Bible calls us repeat offenders, when it calls us you know, beyond rehabilitation, that shouldn't deflate us and make us angry and make us get mad at God. This should actually allow us to breathe a little bit easier at night because the good news is we're all in the same boat. There ain't no need to keep up with the Joneses or the Clarks or anyone else because we are all repeat offenders. That's our nature. In fact, this is a doctrine called original sin. This is one of the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. Original sin is this. Sin is not merely actions that you do. Sin is the fundamental disposition of your heart. And if you trace your lineage, your DNA, all the way, if you go on Ancestry.com and you do search far enough back, you'll see a picture of Adam going like this, holding an apple with a bite out of it. Because ever since the Garden of Eden, we've got that DNA in us. And until the day we leave this earth, that old man, the Bible calls it, that sinful nature is going to remain with us. Never gets rehabilitated, doesn't get any better. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of you when you become a Christian, but the old man still taints everything we do. Jacks it up. And this is called the doctrine of original sin. And so when the Bible calls us repeat offenders who are basically beyond rehabilitation in this life, that should not deflate us and discourage us. That should actually make us breathe easier because we're not oddballs. The weird, crazy thoughts you have, everybody has. You know, I mean, you, you could be riding somewhere with your best friend. Maybe you're going to lunch at a, like some epic sub shop and you're on the way there and your best friend starts, he, he just keeps locking the power door locks every 15 seconds. Maybe it's even your co-pastor, you know, and he's locking because he's OCD. He's major OCD, so every 15 seconds, he just has to make sure those doors are locked because that's some kind of defense mechanism that goes back to mommy and daddy issues. Who knows? But there's something going on there, okay? And he locks it every 15 seconds, and you begin to think to yourself, I could strangle him and leave him for dead, and no one would ever suspect me because I'm his best friend, Right? That pops in your head for a second. And you even start to fantasize about how you would carry out the deed. You're like, you know what? First I strangle him. Then I run to Ace Hardware. I get that special chemical that breaks down the flesh and the bones quicker. I saw in Forensic Files last week. Some of y'all watch a lot of Forensic Files, right? So you know all how to get away with a murder. But you start fantasizing. And, first, and then all of a sudden you catch yourself. Oh, what the heck am I doing? See how it... This is the human... Romans 7 is the human condition. We're all freaks and we can't help ourselves. Every human being is a sinner. Merry Christmas, okay? 
That's the first point. Everyone's a sinner. And here, here, here's where the problem comes in. Because God is, he's holy. He's holy. And because God is holy, he cannot dwell with sinners. He can't do it. In fact, Habakkuk 1 says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You can't even tolerate wrongdoing. God is like that lady in your office that can't be around, you know, perfumes. And so she puts up signs everywhere, you know, make this a scent-free workplace. And then someone comes in one day with, you know, top two buttons undone. You're like, this is going to get interesting, right? And they walk in and all of a sudden perfume fills the air and she like starts gagging. She can't tolerate it. Same way with God, except he's not destroyed. We are. Heaven is a sin-free workspace. And God is holy. He cannot dwell in the presence of sinners. That's a problem because all we ever do is sin. And I know this is an unpopular thing to mention today, especially in churches, because a lot of people are like, who the, who the heck is God to tell me how to do anything? Who is God to tell me you know, who I should date, how I should dress, how I should talk, how I should spend my money? Who is God to do any of that? Uh, allow me to shed some light on something. The reason that God has full authority over us is because he created us. He created us, okay? Psalm 100 says it this way. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. We're his sheep. He made us. We belong to him. Literally in the Hebrew it says, we are his. We to him belong. And this is what I call, I call this sort of like the Lego rule of all creation. Because everyone knows, when you make something with the Lego, you, you know, a couple of Legos, that, that's yours. You're the rightful owner of that. I mean, I saw this recently in my house. Two of my sons were fighting over this Lego bus. It was really cool. And one son had it, and the other one wanted it back, and he said he had it first, and it turned into this big brouhaha. I didn't want to get involved because I didn't know who it belonged to. They both played their case very well, and so I kind of ignored them and watched ESPN, you know? But so... My wife is so wise and discerning, she just asked one question, quieted the room. She said, who made the Lego bus? Immediately, a hush fell over the room. My one son handed the Lego bus back to his brother. <laughs> Why? Because everyone knows, every human being knows intuitively, if you make something, if you create it, you're the rightful owner for it. And, let, and Psalm 100 is what I call the Lego rule of all creation. We are the sheep of his pasture. God created us, and therefore God has full right and authority over us. Everyone knows. You don't have to teach kids this. They know it. And so the reason that God has a right to do with his creation, what he wants to do is because he is God. And I want to tell you something. It's good that God is God because his plan for our lives is a billion times better than our plan for our life. God has a desire to do us good. He's got good plans for us, it says in Jeremiah. God's not the, the malignant dictator in the sky waiting to squash us like a bug. That's not God. God is the loving creator who made us and then gave us the Bible and says, here's the instruction manual for living. That's how much God loves us. So God is holy. We are sinners. That was all introduction because you have to get that because that is the backdrop of this passage. Because before you understand who we are and who God is, Emmanuel, it won't be a mystery to you. But when we understand who we are and we're reminded of, of our sinfulness, and we're reminded that God is holy and he cannot dwell with sin. All of a sudden, the name Emmanuel, God with us, becomes very peculiar. In fact, this is amazing, but it's part of it's covered up. But one of the major dictionaries of the Old Testament says this about the name Emmanuel. It says the Hebrew preposition here, with, ima. 
expresses the concept of inclusiveness, togetherness, and company. God with us, Emmanuel, is not like God deciding to give us a side hug. I'm going to kind of get close to you. It's not God saying, let's do a fist bump. Let's stay away, you're sinful. No, this has the idea of like Black Friday. Togetherness, everyone crammed together. This idea of with here is what's going to happen if you go to Walmart right after the service. You're going to be crammed in with people. You are close to someone. This is God snuggling up and getting alongside with you. And that does not make sense. That kind of with does not make sense to us. How in the world could God be with us? This never makes sense to us in our, in our flesh, in our fallen minds. I mean, you look through the Old Testament, you look through the first 39 books of the Bible, God does not dwell with man. He spends about a short day with Adam and Eve in the garden, and then after that, God veils himself and shields himself from humanity. I mean, you read story after story. Even when God is close to people, he's far away. I mean, God brings the children of Israel out of Egypt, and he appears as this huge pillar of cloud, right? During the day to, to block the sun and the UV rays. And then at nighttime, he's a huge fireball to heat up the, the desert because it becomes very cold there. It kept him warm. But God doesn't appear to them in any kind of form. He's a big cloud and a big fireball. And then when he went into the temple, he was behind a three-foot-wide veil, thick. And only once a year, the priest could go back there. And the priest actually would carry like a smoke bomb, like those seven-minute smoke bombs, you know? And he would hold that in front of his eyes so he couldn't see and gaze upon the glory of God. And even Moses, you know, the Bible says that Moses spoke to God face to face as a man speaks to his friend. That's what the Bible says. And yet, when Moses asked God, he said, you know what? Can you show me your glory? God said, no one can see my face and live. And he actually took Moses, shoved him into the cleft of a rock. And all Moses saw was like God's afterglow. He's like afterburners. Like when you see one of those big jets go through the sky and you just see the cloud afterward, you can't really see the jet sometimes. It's so bright. That's what Moses saw. You read through the Old Testament, God lives in a gated community and there's a huge sign out front that says no solicitors, trespassers will be shot on sight. God was never dwelling with man in the Old Testament. And yet, we come to this passage and it says, Jesus' name is God with us. That doesn't make sense. I mean, a lot of other names for Jesus would make sense here. You know? God against us, if that was Jesus' name, that makes sense. God destroys us, that makes sense. God apart from us, God separates from us. Those all make sense. But God with us, that's peculiar. How does this happen? How in the world can this be so? Well, enter Jesus Christ. The God-man who's been making with possible for 2,000 years. And Jesus, when he came to this earth, he wasn't another lawgiver. Jesus did not come to tell us to be better people, to wash behind our ears. Jesus did not come as another Moses. If that was the case, Jesus could have stayed in heaven and just used the bullhorn along with the people from Westboro Baptist. And he could have shouted down to us all the things we should be doing. But Jesus came to this earth to make God with us possible. And Jesus did two things that makes God with us possible. First of all, Jesus lived the perfect, sinless life that we were supposed to live. Never got angry, never got stressed out and Mount St. Helens on someone, you know, said something that they didn't really mean or maybe they did mean just came out. He never lusted during a Bud Light commercial, never did anything sinful at all, was perfectly sinless, 33 and a half years of living. Second of all, he died on a cross in our place to absorb the wrath 
and the judgment that we deserve for our sins. In fact, he says, I'm going to drink that cup of judgment to the very dregs. I'm not backwashing. There ain't nothing left for you. I'm drinking it all. And now if you have faith in Christ, you will never fall under condemnation, it says in the Bible. Jesus, he lived the life that we should have lived, and he died the death that we should have died. So we could have the life we've always wanted with God in heaven forever. Those are the two things that Jesus did. And so Jesus is God with us. With us, he had to be God instead of us. He had to first be God instead of us. And this is really the true mystery of Christmas. And friends, the way that we find rest and the way that we find peace for our troubled souls is through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 10, this is a verse that you can build your life on. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Circle that, highlight that. When you stand before God, you plead that verse. You wrote it, I believe it, that settles it, right? If you confess that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you have faith in his finished work, that is how we enter into rest and peace. And all of our guilt, all of our shame, all the inadequacies we feel, that is how they were taken care of and amended. Because listen, God never lowers his standards and we never reach his standards. The way that we have our sins atoned for is only through the cross. That's the only way. There is no other Savior. But if you confess, if you confess and you actually tonight, you don't believe the lie that tells you the way to enter into heaven is by redoubling your efforts, by going to a soup kitchen every Saturday, by trying to be a better person. No. It doesn't really matter what would Jesus do. What matters most is what did Jesus do? Because Jesus came to be Jesus for you because you can't be Jesus. And the way that we have peace of conscience, the way that our life is flooded with good works, with joy, with peace, that's not drudgery, is by marinating like a tea bag in the gospel of God's love for us. That's what church is all about. We come here tonight to be re-reminded that we are, we are saved by faith alone. That we are children of God by faith alone, even though there is much evidence in our conscience against us. And so if you don't yet know Christ, or if you do know Christ, my advice to both is to cling to Jesus tonight. Fix your eyes upon the Savior that came to earth to die for our sins and to give us peace so we can have true joy during this holiday season.